don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 41 and today we are talking about The Last Winter from 2006 directed by Larry Fessenden. And as we uh, talked about last week when we were talking about Kelly Records movies, her and Fessenden have a seem to have a pretty close creative relationship. He was in, I uh, almost said Franny and Zoe, he was in Wendy and Lucy. Um, <laughs> and in this film, we see uh, James Legrosse or Legros. I don't, maybe he pronounces it with like a French pronunciation. Um, and he was the husband who was philandering in uh, certain women. It took me halfway through the film to, to realize where I'd seen him before. Yes, he is the man philandering in certain women. Don't you hate it when guys philander in certain women? <laughs> so, yeah, it took me uh, a minute to realize that. Uh, but it makes sense because, you know, they were, um, you know, buds. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but she told a story about Larry Fessenden teaching her how to edit. And so she also edits all of her movies as well. Um, so, yeah, pretty, pretty cool little connection. However, I only set all that up to say that uh, this movie is much worse than all the films we watched last week. Much, much agreed. Yeah. Um, So we have this, you know, climate change oriented horror film from 2006. It looks like it's from like 1999 and you would rent it in like a five VHS for $5 deal and watch half of it and be like, "I I don't need to see the rest of this. Um, but with that being said, the, the message itself, this is one of those instances where, uh, like you said before, it has the right bad guys, which is humanity pretty much. Uh, now the bad guys are the uh, snow monsters. Weren't, did you, did you not watch this? The snow monsters. <laughs> they, they weren't snow. They were like spirit gas, the oil monsters from this, from beneath the ice, I guess I should say. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the basic concept the, the the classic horror movie thing which i think they did a pretty okay job of setting up at the beginning with all the uh the promotional video i guess or instructional video that they're watching from this north industries which is again a pretty good generic name for this nefarious um you know conglomerate oil company yeah. thing yeah. and you get the video of the uh the well that they drilled in 1986 or whatever and they you know, found whatever, never released the report. And then they covered it with just a single white little cube building looking thing, like an outhouse almost, and never went back to it. And so now because of special legislation from Congress, they mentioned, which I think was a nice touch, they are going to go back and reopen it and see what we got going on down there. Mm -hmm. Surprise, it's ghosts. So it, all this ta- all this talk of drilling uh, for oil, it's I think it's interesting to note is uh, it predates Sarah Palin in 2006 and her. Uh, I mean, doesn't predate her, but her celebrity right. oh, okay. uh, saying "drill, baby, drill." Uh, Seeing Russia from her house so. and all that. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That's actually. That would have been a really cool connection to make, but since it predates that, but you know, it's, it's right. A lot like 
you know, like old joy, it, it's right in the, the heart of the, uh, the Bush, the W Bush years, um, which was, you know, everybody that's in oil or coal looks back on those, like the halcyon days. Although I guess in oil, they never really ended. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to uh, ask you what you think about the central, uh, sort of plot line of this film, which is that they are, you know, drilling for this oil and in doing so, and the permafrost is melting and all that. They're sort of, if I'm understanding correctly and not, not a dumbass, they're like releasing the spirits of the plants and animals that created this, these fossil fuels. So sort of the fossils are becoming these spirit beasts that then attack humans. And they all you seem know, to be I, caribou I, I for some reason. I don't think I, I don't think I noticed that it was the spirits of like particular fossils uh, that that to me that sounds cooler than I thought it was just like some unknown oh we don't know the forces of nature we don't know what's trapped under there that sounds way cooler if if that's what it is is there something that clued you into that oh it's just um when the the young kid I can't remember his name uh, Maxwell Who, I guess who's the worst actor in the movie by <laughs> far yeah not not great I think it's him when he's he's talking to Hoffman and Hoffman's sort of like the one that knows the ship is sinking but he's trying to cash in before it does and see these things like see the Arctic before it's gone and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of he's a he's a cool character a well conceived character I think but yeah. they're having that conversation and Maxwell says something like. Well, you know, what are fossils, but, you know, dead animals that make up all of this fuel. So I don't know if that's like directly what Fessenden's trying to get across or if it's, uh, you know, the character rationalizing what has happened. I, I like that reading more than just the, uh oh, we unearthed ghosts type yeah. thing. It kind of reminded me in a weird way of uh, the bad guy or whatever the thing's called in Fern Gully. Oh, Hexus. Right. Hexus. Yeah. 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 In, in that it is this sort of primordial curse or something that they threw their uh, irresponsible tr- treatment of the land unleash. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think you've probably got a pretty good case for that reading. Um, I just must have missed that line somehow. Um Yeah, I'm not sure you get it's easy watching this movie to kind of get distracted by the poor graphics, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and they're like these transparent spirit looking things. And it just seems kind of out of place. I, I really thought that it was going to be a sort of Blair Witch situation where oh, you know we yeah. don't ever actually see the thing itself. But they, they shot that in the foot like immediately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When he, he, at the end of the camera, when the, the ghost caribou or whatever it is, like jumps over his shoulder. Right. Um, Which, you know, caribou, not, you know, not historically frightening animals. I don't think. Caribou. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So that, that's what we're dealing with. And, And it's funny because the sound that they make, like when the ghost herd shows up or whatever, um, the the closed captioning would say hoof beats, and if it hadn't said hoof beats, I would have been like, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> um, yeah. So 
Yeah, well, as far as the the effects go, you know, not great. Um, the the cast surprisingly good, except for the dude, uh, the bad actor. His name uh, is Zach Guilford. Yeah, so he's not great. But other than that, it's actually kind of interesting. Like Ron Perlman is in it. Connie he, Britton, Connie Britton, uh, James Gross I mentioned, uh, Kevin yeah. Corrigan, who I like a lot. Who oh kind yeah, of pops up he's too. great in The Departed. Yeah, um, so infested in himself is in it for about two minutes before he gets uh, immolated and then crashed airplane. Uh, but yeah, 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 surprisingly strong cast for a movie that's like just not great. It's like a sci-fi movie almost. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a, a movie that you might expect to see on the uh, Sci-Fi Channel. I, just, I don't even know if that still exists, but like the S Y F Y. Oh yeah, that's what I meant by a sci-fi movie, like a sci-fi okay. original yeah, yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it, it does kind of have that feel. It's like something you see at eleven o'clock at night on TV mm-hmm. that you don't watch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I saw that like you, you have you have all but said fuck this movie I hate it. Well, it, it's like you said though. I its heart is in the right place, um, but at the same time, it is kind of. I mean, it's so on the surface, just like kind of preachy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, to me, I know it's kind of a cliche, but. It, I, this is the kind of movie that makes me want to say, write an essay, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. There's very little finesse about the way the film is written. Yeah. And I, I got to get one thing off my chest here before I forget. Uh, the worst moment for me in this movie by far was, you know how Ron Perlman's character has this sort of, uh, he's a little butthurt about Connie Britton hooking up with, uh, the, uh, Hoffman guy. But her and yeah and he he's being a titty baby about it he, he's being a titty baby about it and it, and so he goes off with hoffman on this like you know voyage after the plane crash and we've kind of forgotten a little bit about that little spat and this dude falls into you know through the ice into the water he's lost his boot He's like maybe going to die of hypothermia and Hoffman makes him a fire and he's like, oh, gee, you know about uh, whatever the Connie Britton's character's name is. And he starts talking about his feelings about this little love triangle, which is the weirdest, most awkward, most unrealistic uh, setting for that conversation. Yeah, when when up to that point it didn't really carry a whole lot of weight other than to be like a little bit of extra tension in the movie. And like a re- another reason why Ron Perlman's character wouldn't like Hoffman. Uh, right. And he doesn't really seem all that. I mean, he's like a little bummed out like, Oh, doesn't she want to fuck me anymore? But he doesn't really seem it, it, he's not crushed or anything. He's just like, Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Then and then, like you said, when he's on the verge of death, he's like, "I have to talk about how I feel about whatever her name." Um, let me look, Abby. I have to talk about Abby and my feelings for her. Um, and it it just like you said, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense because that's really not their motivation, right? Their motivation is we're all gonna die if we don't find help. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it just it, it's a strange moment 
strange setting for that conversation uh, that even if it were set in a more appropriate place, we still wouldn't care that much about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I just thought that was a particularly um, unneeded moment and illogical. But uh, I was just, uh, Jensen and I were talking about this movie. She did, she didn't watch it, but I was like sort of telling her about it. And uh, it's got a very, you know, early 2000s sort of perspective on climate change. I was thinking about uh, um, the day after tomorrow and how, you know, the early, early, I shouldn't say early, earlier climate science focused on like polar bears and like melting ice caps and things like that, which of course, I mean, we still talk about today. But because we feel the effects, you know, more today than we did 13 years ago, uh, it seems like a, most of the dialogue is about impacts on heavily populated countries and cities. Uh, and it's, it's, it's sort of interesting how often you used to see images of like, the North pole and things like that. When you, when people talked about climate change and it really seems like a, uh, not a great strategy because it allows people to distance themselves from the reality of it. It's like, Oh, good thing. I don't live in Alaska. Good thing. I don't live in the North pole because then climate change would affect me when really no one's, um, just lamenting the, uh, you know, the breaking up and the melting of permafrost, it's the global impact that that will have. But it seems like that the early representations don't, for whatever reason, don't really make that connection. It's just like, oh, this is happening in the North Pole. Therefore, let's set our climate change movie in the North Pole. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a similar sort of detachment you get when people talk about like the rainforest and yeah. people have been talking about the rainforest since like I was a kid, at least it used to come up all the time deforestation, but it's always it always has to be presented in a way where you won't just immediately be like, oh, that sucks. But it's, you know, on the other side of the planet. Uh, so it's like, oh, you know, the Amazon is the lungs of the world or do you know the cure for cancer might be in the Amazon somewhere and we haven't found it yet? It's like, how about we just like save the forest for the sake of saving the forest? <laughs> like, why is that such a crazy idea? Um, yeah, but, you've got to, you've got to make it somehow, you know, it has to have utility for yeah. human culture. Which is like, what's the utility of a polar bear? It's why most people don't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, well, I say most people. That's that. That's a generalization, but a lot of people, right? And they, the sort of polar bear on the floating piece of ice, has become kind of a like a meme for people that yeah. like deny or not even deny climate change, but just don't really care about it that much. And even in um, if you remember in First Reformed, I was just thinking that on Michael's yeah, computer, his uh, background is the the skinny yeah. polar bear on the the floating chunk of ice. Um. Yeah, it's just an, it's an easy way to let people, if they so choose, detach from these sorts of issues and instead be like, oh, well, you know, that's 
sucks if you live on the North Pole. I don't live there. Therefore, it does not apply to me. Whereas, you know, today and it's December 29th in Alabama, it was like 72 all day and humid as fuck. Uh, so watching a movie called The Last Winter, I was like, yeah, probably. Like, I feel like I'm never going to see proper cold again. Um, you know, uh, when we start having like West Nile virus in Atlanta because <laughs> the, the yeah. uh, equators moved. Uh, we'll see how how much we give a shit about polar bears then, I guess. Yeah, and I, it sucks that you have to. You you just really see how practically minded and how utilitarian American ideology is. Um, we're like things like you said with the rainforest are only worth saving if they i mean i I say utilitarian you might just say selfish might be another word for utilitarian um if it does not benefit me then fuck it let it die um and to me it seems like most of the things worth saving are the things that are uh or it seems like things are worth saving because there's no utility. Like, I mean, and we're getting into some sort of philosophical differences, but like, um, I just don't, I just wonder what sustains people. It's like, if the point of being alive is just to survive, that I, to me, that that seems very cynical, and like there have to be reasons beyond survival uh, that make survival uh, uh, desirable. Yeah, you know, we we've sort of talked about this in terms of the rhetoric on climate change before about how, uh, and this is on the left and the right the people on the right who believe in climate change, that is, uh, people just talk about climate change as if it's, uh, especially on the left, as if it's just self-evident, um, that, that we should, you know, we've got to rally together and, uh, you know, unite behind the science and, uh, but, but no one wants to really address the deeper issue of like, why is, climate change a problem worth solving um, because you're getting into serious philosophical questions um, you know which and also if you completely buy into this like neoliberal capitalist ideology the answer is it's not worth fighting like it's not worth stopping it's worth squeezing the lemon to the very last drop yeah and it's it's climate change is worth fighting and solving, I should say, I I hate using like combative terms, um, but it's worth solving because not because survival is good in and of itself, but because life, um, life is good, uh, or uh, can be good. Life is good. Trademark. Thing, yeah, you always see that on a like a Hummer or something. You're like, yeah, for you, fuck you. Uh, 
But there are things like within life that make it worth preserving. Not, uh, you know, it's not just this uh, utilitarian survival instinct that should should be informing uh, that should be informing climate policy. I don't think. I think it should. I mean, this is totally idealistic, but some sense of like uh, beauty. You know, or, or maybe like, um, reverence might be a better way to put it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Now we're going to start our own school of philosophy where we just talk about, uh, absurd materialism. (laughs) It's like, why does this thing exist? Well, who gives a shit? It, It takes on meaning. I'm glad it's here. Yeah. Um, yeah, and well, it's like, there's something, there's something, uh, uh, what's his name? The, uh, oh shit. Joseph Campbell talks about how he's sort of critiquing the idea of meaning in life. You know, everyone's searching for a meaning in life. Mm-hmm. And he says, people don't really want meaning. He says, what's the meaning of a flower? He says, what people really want is an authentic experience of their lives. Um, and I think, I think that's a nice thought because meaning I think is rational and, uh, and experiences, uh, not irrational, but maybe beyond rationality and, uh, subjective and, messy in a way that feels truer than oh this is the purpose of my life this is what i'm put here to do which of course is a a pragmatic solution you know it's you it's pragmatic to think that way but it's 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 not true you know you come up with your purpose yeah just just like uh they do in the last winter <laughs> trying to bring it all back together. <laughs> no, that's what I, I was thinking today. I, I was listening to a, a Jacobin uh, The Dig podcast that had an interview with uh, Michael Hart of uh, Hart and Negri fame, or Empire, yeah. and all those books. Uh, and yeah, I like I like him a lot. I like the way that he 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 thinks. And they were talking about types of labor. And, you know, he got in all these complicated notions of, you know, technically what you do on social media is labor because you are producing content that is then used by advertisers and stuff like that. And, you know, all that kind of complicated stuff. And it just got me to thinking about like different types of labor because we've talked about it before, of like labor and work and doing work that is meaningful versus work that we see as being non-meaningful but then you what you were just talking about made me think of doing unnecessary labor um, that kind of like then crosses over into recreation yeah um because the the ongoing thing we've been talking about like i've started building little things and yesterday i built a um like a a guitar rack basically that i can like set all my guitars in and have them sit there um, and I based it off these like designs of these multiple guitar rack things that you can buy from like Amazon. And I went and like found the dimensions of them and did all this shit. 
And um, the question's like, why would I do that and not just buy one? Like, what if I fuck it up? I've never done that before. And, you know, the whole list of reasons is like to challenge myself because I think it's fun because maybe it's cheaper or all that sort of shit. Um, but then there's sort of this bigger question of like, what purpose does it serve in my life? Because it's like, I, I'm trained as like a, like a teacher. <laughs> so it's like, this has nothing to do with my like market value or anything like that. It's like solely to create this object that I was like, I want this to exist. Um, it's not like, I know it's sort of like art, but it's not art, I guess. Um, just this kind of artisan artisan yeah craftsman i guess um so it, it kind of takes on this this feeling of like doing this thing that is if you really other than just like it being cool and that's sort of like the magic thing i guess I, I, the word magic's probably not the best not the best thing but talking about this like meaning versus experience thing so it's one thing to know what a flower is and what it does it's another thing to see it and be like that's really pretty right Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a sense of like i can give you a million sort of rationalized sort of utilitarian reasons why i would make this thing but that's not why i wanted to do it i wanted to do it for that kind of absurdist reason of like let's do this thing and i could have been doing i could have been like writing this conference paper i have to present in february or doing a million other things i was like no i want to do this thing you could also set your guitars up against the wall, you know, and it'd be fine. Yeah. Like I already have these like stupid collapsible things that I could use, but I wanted this thing to exist. Um, so that, that right. kind of impulse I think is like when that gets co-opted, then it can be like, you know, Oh, I'm going to make these and sell them or whatever. But no, I just wanted to make this thing to exist for me and like in the house and take up this space. Right. And so, to, to try to bring it back a little bit, you know, we got started on this saying, you know, we're talking about utilitarianism and, and climate change and how it's just taken as self-evident that it's a problem worth solving. Uh, and I think there's maybe an overrepresentation in climate change films, including uh, the last winter. There's an overrepresentation of scientists uh, because, I mean, good, yeah, the scientists are are important. I believe their their findings, uh, but. You know, and it's interesting, the last winter sort of emphasizes also the, the, the sort of will of the people. You know, it's something that keeps coming up in their discussions. But uh, you don't see a whole heck of a lot of movies where just like average Joe is experiencing the effects of climate change. Like when, when, will, there, when will there be a a film from the perspective of some random climate refugee. Um, you know, that to me, that has more potential than like, um, I, I, I just, I just can't identify or empathize with like a scientist in the North pole or in Alaska or wherever, uh, collecting his samples and, you know, writing his, uh, 
snowmobile. It just, it feels so removed. And I guess, I guess filmmakers just need kind of a cool, unique landscape, you know, for their setting, but it, uh, it's distancing for me. No. Yeah. And, and it's kind of, uh, just all, all this science talk. And, uh, I think it, we've talked about this before. Science has become kind of like, it's a way of like mystifying things or even though it's saying it's demystifying things, it actually adds this layer of mystique upon things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sort of like the, uh, uh, Curtis white type stuff, science delusion stuff. Um, and so just what you're saying about the, what it does with these climate change films of sort of creating this sort of barrier between, you as the viewer in trying to fully sort of empathize with, you know, a character or with the situation, even though this is like a horror movie and the degree to which you'd want to empathize is sort of questionable. Um, but you know, it happens still with kind of to go back to what we were talking about before of, um, all the stuff that's happened with like brain, I don't know what to call it, brain science, like physiology, trying to like, uh, quantifying trying to quantify oh. the mind a little bit near neuroscience maybe? yeah neurobiology neuroscience and not 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 to shit on neuroscience or anything but it, it's really incredibly disheartening when you see like a, a story from like buzzfeed or something that's like scientists have figured out why people like the color blue or whatever uh and it's like all the th- we're so determined to take all the things that we that in a lot of ways make up our personality and like who we are and our, our likes and our dislikes and all that stuff and sort of explain it away through chemistry and biology and all that kind of stuff. But added to that though, is the fact that even those attempts, which, you know, I think Richard Dawkins has a book about that sort of principle, um, unweaving the rainbow. And he, he's sort of arguing that, no, this demystification actually just opens up bigger, more wonder-inducing questions, and, and, and that's debatable. Uh, but the real problem with that idea is that just because you understand the kind of physical mechanism that causes you know, certain types of thoughts doesn't get you any closer to understanding what that thought is to me. I I don't know if this is in a Curtis white book or or something else I've read, but um, it, to me, it seems like neuroscience is like, it's like, imagine you have a, a DVD of, and maybe we've talked, maybe I've used this metaphor before. I don't know. Maybe imagine you have like a DVD of Hamlet, you know, and it's like neuroscience is decoding the disc, you know, and they can tell you why it looks a certain way. Uh, they can take apart the TV and, sh- and tell you why, you know, it's black and white here instead of color there or whatever. But they can't that, – that says nothing about like the meaning of, of Shakespeare's words, put together in a particular order and how that Im- impacts how you feel and the subsequent impact it might have on like how you behave, uh, because of the story, mm-hmm. you know, it can't really explain the connections that a story has that are conceived, uh, 
you know, again, by the human mind. And so it's this, you know, people think that brain science, neuroscience is explaining away the mind when really it's just explaining the mechanism that creates the mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just because you understand how something comes about doesn't mean you understand the something. Yeah. If you could see my notes, I, when I was trying to think of it, I wrote brain science question mark, like a fucking <laughs> idiot. Um, but yeah, and even, even sort of beyond all that, there's the, the sort of turn it can take and become a negative where you have this sort of malevolent neuroscience where, okay, now we're going to explain why black people are the way they are. That, that kind of thing like becomes race science and like, a lot of the sort of um, um, evolutionary psychology <laughs> type stuff, it becomes uh, yeah. really destructive if you sort of start buying in too much and saying, okay, we have to decode every little piece and understand why it is the way it is. And when- that, that's the problem with scientism. Science as an ideology or religion um, is, is so self-assured and so self-certain. But if you look at like, you know, the past of what, what used to be in quotes true, uh, what we knew because of science and think of, uh, oh shit, what's it called where you study the shape of a skull phrenology. Phrenology. It's coming uh, back. I like yeah. that this is basically that scene and it's always sunny where uh, Mac is like talking about how Isaac Newton believed the world was hollow or whatever. He's like stupid bitch. Right. But, but that was science, you know, and just, we like to think that our, our age is unique and like we have somehow perfected the discernment of reality, but it, you just can't. And, you know, as, as much good, I think as uh, Greta Thunberg has done this, the, the whole unite behind the science thing, I sort of have to support every time I hear that slogan, I think, you know, seems like the last time people united behind science, uh, some really terrible things happened. The atom bomb, <laughs> lots of things. the atom bomb. I mean, you, you think about phrenology and like, and, uh, anti-Semitism for a long time, uh, and all that, you know, it's just, uh, I just, I think people should unite, but I'm not sure it should be behind science. Yeah. And then I think we should let science, uh, serve whatever it is we unite behind again i'll nominate reverence uh, Hmm. for the uh for the ideology that we unite behind and it's like a big another big problem i'm sure this is like stuff we've talked about a million times but people see these like scientific reports about you know climate change or whatever it may be and they can't process it so really they're not looking at the report they're looking at how the report is itself reported by whatever new news agency that it's filtered through mm-hmm. um, so they get this very kind of stilted narrow uh, kind of blinded version of what the report says and it all comes out the other end of the sausage making machine as as oh well, they're saying that the world's going to end and blah, blah, blah. and as we said on the show before like that's we don't think that the world is just going to like stop one day. We just think that the way that humans live on the planet is going to change in major ways 
mm-hmm. whether that's and through it, and it will be less conducive to health and happiness. Yes, and uh, you know whether that's the changes we take, uh, you know, purposefully to try to curb any sort of you know, worsening of the effects that are already going to happen, or it's if we ignore them and then they just come and that, you know, the big ghost elk comes and runs us over or whatever. Uh, Mounts us. Yeah. uh, That's, you know, that's just, that's not science, right? That's just like, there's a change is going to come, right? (laughs) Anyway, I guess, I guess to take it back to the film, like, like the, the point was, uh, these climate change is so steeped in science and, and for good reason, because the science is there and it's accurate. And there's, you know, 97 or whatever it is percent consensus among scientists. And for the last like 12 years, there's been uh, zero challenges to climate change uh, in academic, you know, peer reviewed literature uh, journals. Um, but in these films, which, you know, in film, which is a popular medium, I'm not sure why they feel the need to uh, represent scientists so heavily um, when, again, even though the science, I'm not disagreeing with the science, I don't understand why the heroes of these films have, you know, think about day after tomorrow, Dennis Quaid is this like climate scientist. Uh, to me, it seems like the hero should be like, a an elderly, uh, Southern conservative man who believes the science yeah, installs the <laughs> solar that panel would be on heroic. his roof. Yeah. Buys a Prius, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and that kind of goes back to what you're saying of like, in this movie, it's like climate scientist, good oil. I don't even know what Ron Perlman's character is like oil company manager guy, middle manager guy, uh, bad. Right. And on the surface, that's, you know, that, that, that tracks, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but then, you know, just with the, the execution of the film it just doesn't it ends up not really meaning anything to me it's like oh yeah that's that's a good impulse and the right bad guy the right good guy more or less i just don't care yeah and and it's hard to say had we seen this in 2006 how we would have felt you know mm-hmm. uh, because it's it's easy to just stand here from with the LASIK of hindsight and critique it. Um, but I don't know. It's a, it's the same, the same way an inconvenient truth, uh, feels very 2006. This feels very an inconvenient truth. Um, with the, with the snow and the melting ice and everything as the focus of the narrative and yeah, you just, you just, we keep asking this question about some of these movies. Who is this for? Yeah. Who is the audience of this movie? It makes you think, right? Like who, I don't know. I'm not really sure because it's, 
I don't know. You, you talk about like what what kind of kind of Anthropocene art can you make? And we talked about this a lot with Gun Island of how it's like kind of one of the first pieces of the kind of art that Ghosh talks about in The Great Derangement. It's trying to do these these new sorts of things and represent these issues in new kinds of ways. And so even though this film is not doing anything like that, really, um, it is packaging these things, these issues in a form that is way more likely to reach a, a popular audience. Like, it, I feel like if you ask the random person on the street, chances are really high that they have not seen the movie or read Gun Island, but they would be way higher that they've seen the movie, I feel like. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, it's sort of like, I can't fault that, it, that part of it because yeah, it's, it's trying to present these issues to a much broader audience, but at the same time, it's, it's not really, it's not like it was a successful movie. Uh, so how much impact could it really have? Right. It's not like this was some like, you know, big 20th century Fox Christmas movie or anything like that. Yeah, I was, uh, this is. I don't know, maybe, maybe sort of related. I, uh, I got recently a li- the library of America, like really nice hardback edition of, uh, the complete Robert Frost. Uh, and I was reading some poems in there and I was just noticing how, I mean, almost every poem that I have I've read of his so far, is just like so steeped in, nature and the processes of nature and the mythical human meanings that nature has that we still kind of pay lip service to. Um, but you just think, you just think about, just think about every Robert Frost poem that's ever written. And then just think about like every movie on Netflix and like how many of them are concerned with the with natural processes and and what those processes mean to our human lives and and where we get our significance and what we understand as beautiful um and it's just i don't want to sound like an old fogey or whatever even though i guess the term old fogey is itself and an old fogeyism. Uh, but it, it just seems, uh, I mean, I think when I, when I put it in those terms, it seems kind of hopeless. Like we have entered a, a time where most of the art that most, that, that the majority of people engage with has very little to do with nature and our relation to it, uh, at least not directly, not intentionally. I mean, it says something about our relationship to nature, but unconsciously and, and negatively. Yeah. And if you compare like Robert Frost, who was, you know, but as popular as a poet can be, uh, to the, the big poet today, and you know, maybe this is not true. I haven't really looked, I know she sold a bunch of books, but uh, Ruby Carr, you know what I'm talking about? I don't even know Ruby Carr. No, uh, Ruby Carr. It's a uh, she 
had a book called Milk and Honey. I think she has a couple others. Anyway, oh it, okay, it's some of the Milk most and like Honey sounds familiar. Yeah, it's like the most insufferable, just like horseshit that I've I've ever read. It's like poetry that I've read a million times in like poetry workshop classes. Is it where, like confessional? Yeah, very 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 like on the nose type stuff. Um, I'm gonna Google a poem. I, I don't know the names of any of her poems, but I'm just going to Google Rupi Kaur. Po- She's like an Instagram poet, you know. So all of her poems are very like neatly packaged to be presented very quickly. Um, okay, <laughs> here, here, this is one of her poems, and, and like it's like E. Cummings, where nothing's capitalized, but it's pointless. Whereas E. Cummings, it was necessary. Anyway, I do not need the kind of love that is draining. I want someone who energizes me. That. That's a poem. Um, That's the whole poem? Yeah. Let me see. Let me find another one. Oh, wow. Uh, you ask if we can still be friends. I explain how a honeybee does not dream of kissing the mouth of a flower and then settle for its leaves. I don't need more friends. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, and there, that's, there, uh, that's what I would call worldly. Yeah, and there are all these little uh, illustrations and in a lot of ways, she's kind of like Shel Silverstein, but for like angsty teenagers. Mm. Um, and so people read these things that are more or less like poorly written observations and think that they're that's how poetry should be. And you see this all the time. At like if you go to like poetry open mics, which I don't know how often you do that. But no, anytime I've never. been, there's always a person that, that has poems like this where it's like the only things they write about are relationships or more specifically, they have a poem about fucking and then they read that um, yeah. and they have, you know, it's all the same kinds of words and images and it evokes all the same kind of feeling of like Cinemax softcore pornography. Um, and so it, that's sort of what's become popular, what is popular now. Um, so it, it's the same kind of issue that a lot of art runs into is like people want to see themselves in it. And things that they're concerned with. And if they're only concerned about, you know, their romantic life or whatever, they're going to see this and be like, oh, I relate to that very deeply. Whereas if they see something about like a climate scientist, they don't really care as much. Um, yeah. It, it, it rem- this conversation sort of reminds me. I don't remember if we had this conversation uh, recorded or or if this was something you and I just talked about, uh, about how. The, the problem of climate change is so hard to grasp for a lot of people, I think, because they conceive of – the, use a metaphor of a play and most people think the essential drama is like the interpersonal drama happening between characters on the stage and climate change is asking you to understand the real problem of life as like the stage crumbling beneath the actors and and like a lot of the things that the characters or the actors take for granted are contributing to the crumbling of the stage and so it's it's complex interaction between the interpersonal drama and the sort of setting the sort of meta concerns that is that is the actual uh problem uh, but it also reminds me of the conversation we had, I guess, last week about uh, Brokeback Mountain mm-hmm. and how people focus on like the gay cowboy thing 
and the the sort of uh, controversy of that, if you want to call it that. Uh, and and I alluded to the Curtis White review or analysis, I guess, in his book, The Spirit of Disobedience. And he's talking about how you have to understand setting in any story, understand setting as integral to the drama. There is as much being said in a film, which is as much a visual medium as it is a an oral medium. There is as much being said by the setting of that film as there is you know, by the interpersonal drama. Uh, And so what's being communicated through the setting is just pure, natural beauty. Uh, And it's no, I don't, I don't think it's any coincidence that the, the characters in that movie, uh, you know, sort of carry out this love affair in this, this particular, you know, beautiful setting in these mountains. Uh, But it, I only say that to to make a larger point uh, in thinking about religion and and you know we've several times we've talked about the issue of dominion and and how that is just sort of intrinsic to um, a, a certain version of American Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity, and it, I just made that comment about how much of Frost's poetry is steeped in nature. Think about how many of like Jesus's parables in in the Gospels, you know, use um, natural things, uh, trees and bushes and figs and soil, uh, and it's like it's. I, I wish, uh, I wish Christianity could start to. Um, interpret those stories and, and take maybe maybe the way to say it is to take them more seriously and like Curtis White says view the setting as integral to the drama and, and maybe you know if if uh, Christianity could start understanding the and take more seriously the um, you know what, um, I want to say the character in the stories of Jesus chooses to use as his metaphor. It, it, it's like as nature becomes, as nature is destroyed and diminished, it seems like to a certain mindset, you could, you could make the argument that the truth of what Jesus is saying is also being diminished. Like if a kid grows up, and doesn't know what the fuck a fig is, he's not as apt to understand, you know, this supposed uh, truth of, of the parable. Um, all this to make the larger point that it seems like the the mythologies of the past and the art of the past was just inherently steeped in uh, nature and and consistently grappled with humanity's relationship to nature and now it just doesn't do that as much or if it does it does it in in uh obscure places for for people like you and i to find you know and not in in it's not on netflix you know 
Well, it's you, not televised. Well, you know where it is. It's it's on Instagram. It's hashtag nature. <laughs> it's a uh, it's either people and I I follow some of these accounts. So, I, but like uh, people who like go on these great hiking trips and take pictures of these these mountains or whatever, or like you can follow the national park surface and they'll show you like a picture of Buffalo or whatever. But what I'm thinking of, uh, that springs to mind, uh, most quickly is those accounts where it's like a couple. And maybe you've seen these pictures. Like the famous one is like, there's a couple and everywhere they go, they take a picture where like the girl's in front and she's got her hand going behind her and the dude's holding her hand and she's like leading him into like, to the beach or on a mountain trail or something like that. Mm. Um, or, you know, you'll get like, uh, some Instagram influencer girl who's just like showing a bunch of cleavage, uh, on the side of a mountain in Vietnam yeah. or something, you know, that, that here's my of, cleavage in Vietnam. Yeah. Drink Dr. Here's Pepper. My, here's <laughs> my cleavage in San Juan. You know? Yeah. And you know, you also have dudes like flexing their abs and like that, that sort of stuff. Uh, and it's just, it, that's how people think of, like, that's the, that's the Instagram nature. That's sort of the touristy nature. That's not like, in, you know, part of the problem is people don't view where they live as being a part of the natural world, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, my backyard's just my backyard. It's not nature. It's like, well, tell that to the birds and squirrels and all that. Yeah. It used to be. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. it's kind of funny like uh, you were talking about the the bible and these references to these things and people don't know what they are uh thinking about like a future world in which like figs no longer grow or whatever (laughs) because of climate change and people are like huh it's weird that they had figs back then yeah that's yeah that's uh and you think about like topsoil depletion and like um, I, I just, just the things that are used as like significant metaphors are being in the Bible are, um, are part of the destruction that's happening. And so it's, it's interesting to, you know, it, it seems like the, if you were to say that to run of the mill, you know, even, even like a run of the mill preacher, uh, around here, the answer would be like, you know, you're focusing on the wrong part of the story. The, the important part is like what, what Jesus means. Uh, and I'm saying the exact opposite. Yes, it's important what he means, but the true, uh, the true, what he truly means cannot be fully understood without, uh, considering fully the uh the specifics of the metaphors he uses um and and i don't think there's anything absurd to me to me if you're if you were a christian that would that should register as a taking more seriously you know what what is said in the bible as opposed to focusing on the wrong aspect well, I mean, don't you know it said to go forth and subdue the land? Well, I mean, what do you what do you say about that? I mean, did you not read it? I did. Well, I think you need to read it again. 
<laughs> you, you sound some, like get uh, you some glasses. Ed Balk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is, that's kind of fascinating to me of like, and, and, you know, all religious backgrounds are, are guilty of these kinds of things, but how you can read these texts that have such reverence for nature and then turn around and do horrible shit kind of amazing. The human capacity to be hypocrites, <laughs> to have yeah. two, two very different ideas in your head. Yeah, people fit religious myths into their own ideologies not the other way around they do not fit their lives into the religious myth and if you do you're a fundamentalist and that's right yeah you're yeah you're (laughs) it would be better if you did it the other way yeah and if you're if you're muslim you're a fundamentalist anyway but if you're christian yeah there ain't no other type of muslim it's kind of funny um i was reading the wikipedia page for the last winter which is relatively short and here is the first line of the production tab it says uh, fessenden's first idea for the script involved a a muslim and a non-muslim forced to depend on each other in a remote location and that somehow became this a muslim and a non-muslim yeah remember this is 2006 so he thinks this is like hot shit like gonna shock the world idea and then he, okay, so he later on has this quote isn't, for him. Isn't there a movie called The Mountain Between Us that's kind of like a white woman and a black man surviving in the wilderness? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it might be Kate Winslet. You're thinking of Jungle Fever. <laughs> um, but no, this is a, this quote from him says, ultimately I wanted to show how an individual's worldview affects how he or she deals with reality. Okay, that's vague. He says, Fessenden said the monsters are not to be taken literally and are a manifestation within Hoffman's mind, which doesn't make any sense given that at the end they kind of, the end is sort of like a take shelter type ending almost. Yeah. uh, Where uh, Abby, uh, Connie Britton's character, wanders out of the hospital that she's been taken to while unconscious and you don't see anything but a puddle on like empty streets, but you hear the, the like ghost uh, caribou coming through yeah and you see the doctor has apparently hanged himself mm-hmm. he was well hung all right <laughs> but it, it, it kind of makes me think of something um i thought of this a little while ago and i forgot to to come circle back around to it but you were saying you know like we've said before the problem with understanding climate change is that it's you know, uh, Timothy Morton calls it a hyper object. It's a thing that we're all, we all exist within, but it's so big. We can't see it. We can only sort of witness individual pieces of evidence of it and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, that it kind of, the one part of the movie that I thought was kind of interesting in that regard is when Hoffman is talking to, uh, Ron Perlman's character, Ed, uh, at Pol- Pollock, I almost said Pollock, Pollock. And, uh, he's telling him that like we have to leave because there's like a sour gas leak or something. And he keeps sort of saying, well, you know, the permafrost has been frozen for, you know, thousands of years. We don't know what's coming up. We don't know what was in the well, all that sort of stuff. And Ed's response every time is like, well, how do you know? How are you sure of that? What, what do you like? How would you know that? And Hoffman's just like, 
I don't know that for certain, like there's no way to know for certain, but can't you see that the effects around us are indisputable? Like the kid died and all these weird things and terrible things keep happening. Something is going on. And Mm -hmm. Ed's like, well, you don't have proof. Therefore I can't, how can we know that that's it? And then he goes to Abby after this and she tells him basically like she basically treats him like he's the one acting crazy by saying that they should recognize that something's going on, mm-hmm. which again, very, very sort of like aligned with the whole climate change theme of the film. And so I thought that that sort of stretch of about five or six minutes in the movie was, was pretty, pretty well done and more interesting than a lot of the other parts of the film. Yeah, and and Abby, if I'm not mistaken, treats him similarly to is it Ed Ron mm-hmm. Perlman's character, mm-hmm. uh, and that's when he's he, uh, Hoffman says, "Oh, you guys deserve each other. You know, you're just alike or whatever." And basically, he's putting them in the same ideological camp, like they're you're you're sort of empirical skepticism uh has lost its credibility with with this evidence now in play yeah and so i thought that was that was uh the one part of the movie where my my ears kind of perked up and i was like oh that's kind of interesting how that's written um and it lines up with that what we were talking about of the, the challenges of presenting something like that still yeah. not a great movie my uh my favorite part was the plane crash <laughs> that was a little i mean all of the action quote unquote action sequences are pretty lame but the plane crash I, are you thinking about the same thing i am where it crashes and kevin corrigan's character is running from the the fire the flames and it's just like <laughs> so <laughs> obvious that it's bad cgi yeah and his legs yeah. are on fire and that somehow like kills him i, I don't know well, the, the, something we haven't talked about is like the, uh, the crow, uh, community. Oh, the birds. Yeah. Well, no, it's like the, I guess it's some sort of indigenous population. I think they call it the crow. Oh yeah. It's the Fort Crow is the Fort Crow. Place where they live. Yeah. I thought you meant the and birds. Like, and a few of their team members are like. Or Eskimos or something. Yeah, which I don't think that's the proper term, but okay. Eskimo. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm behind on that. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I uh, I, imme- I apologize immediately. <laughs> that's probably I think that's the the outdated word for it. Uh, but yeah, the in one of them, I can't remember what happens to the guy Lee. I think is his name. Um, but the other one, Don goes insane right and to be honest i kind of spaced out during this part of the movie but she yeah and she kills the kevin Corrigan. yeah guy. she she like stabs him no i think she or, suffocates him doesn't she shit i don't i was to be honest i was looking at my phone at the moment when that yeah, happened i think i think she suffocates him and then abby catches her mm-hmm. and when abby's confronting her she like pushes her and then abby like kind of accidentally kills her because she the woman hits her head on the side of this like metal shelf or something. Yeah. Okay. So I, I remember that part cause I, I remember 
I remember Don like stabbing uh, Motor, who's Kevin Corgan's character, because he's the the guy that fixes stuff, and uh, like she's like laughing maniacally as she's doing it, yeah. um, or suffocates him or whatever, and and then that's when Abby like is afraid of her and and shoves her and all that, which it doesn't yeah. make any sense. It kind of makes it fit in more with the whole like gas pocket and it's making everyone go crazy kind of storyline. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I guess kind of makes sense. Cause then Abby doesn't think anything otherworldly is going on until the end of the film. And she's like, Oh, ghosts. Um, unless we're supposed to, I don't know. I, I'm not a big fan of this thing where it's like, well, what do you think happened? Right. Do you think that the ghosts were real? That's just stupid. I, I prefer like the end of take shelter where it's like, Oh no, that's happening. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. Um, are we supposed to be confused about how she got to the hospital? I, I guess the flare gun saved her. Yeah. Which that whole thing, like the whole climax of the film is Hoffman deciding whether he wants to shoot the ghost with the flare gun or shoot it in the air to get the attention of the people in the village. That's the big, like, Oh, what will he do moment? And then there's when he gets picked up, I guess, by the, by the monster ghost thing. Uh, there's that weird cut to like, like a memory of him in the house, like at his family home and it's snowing. Mm-hmm. Is that, are we supposed to think, oh, this is what's being lost is this, you know, yeah, cause it's we're not going to have winter. any more snowy winters in the suburbs. Yeah. Or everyone's going to be murdered by ghosts. Um, yeah, I guess that's what we're, I guess that's the symbolism we're going for. It's kind of like a citizen Kane <laughs> thing going on. Uh, but yeah, then I guess the, village pe- the village people i guess the village people show up and and take abby uh to the hospital i was like yeah, i must have dozed off during that part <laughs> yeah the, the, i totally missed the ymca the one that's a sailor kicks number. the door in and drags her out um but but yeah so she ends up at the hospital and then yeah, and then the end is very ambiguous but not in a cool way uh, in a way that suggests they didn't have enough money to show you what's happening. Yeah, very much. They they blew it all on the ghost, the ghost caribou. <laughs> they blew it all on that uh, fire from the airplane crash. God, and there was a lot of fire. It instantly immolated both people inside down to a skeleton. Um, yeah, just pretty ridiculous. Um, but the, like it. Kevin Corgan's feet were on fire when he was running. I was like, man, he is fast. How stupid is that that his legs are on fire and he's surrounded by snow? And I was like, just roll, dude. You're fine. It's like bury your feet in the snow. And instead he just keeps running. Well, that jet feels a a tricky, (laughs) tricky thing to douse. Well, it can't melt still beams. I don't know if you knew that. (laughs) But it's just, I don't know. There's, there's, I'm kind of no, no, I'm kind of disappointed because on it, so we we picked this film not knowing a whole lot about it because we're like hey it's the only sort of climate change horror film that I've seen so far I've and seen Birdemic oh okay well there's that too 
Um, so, and it seemed on the surface to have a cool concept. And I still think that is, I think the very beginning of the film, the first like 10 minutes, I was like, I'm completely in on this, that little promotional video that the dude's watching. I was like, this is, you know, adequately sort of spooky and they're going to go to the well and they're going to find this stuff. Um, and it turns out that like the, the box at the well, which is like one of the creepiest images of just like this single white box in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic that kind of has a date on it like that, that is ultimately meaningless. <laughs> like yeah. the, the dude goes to it um, and like some weird shit happens, but nothing other than that occurs. It all just sort of like comes to them through the air or whatever. Yeah. And, and I think maybe our, our unmet expectations with this movie have to do with the fact that our expectations were associated with uh, Kelly Reichardt because yes. that's how we came to Larry Fessenden. And this um, does not seem like a film that has anything to do with Kelly Reichardt. No, no, this is uh, like, it's, it's not biodome, but, no. but it's, it's definitely, kind of a, a bottom tier selection i think there's a reason we hadn't heard of it and it's a it's a movie about climate change and we have a climate change movie podcast and we had never heard of this movie <laughs> yes you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely uh so you know i can't i can't really recommend it unless you like sort of B movie horror things. Um, but I was thinking of like, so whenever I, I read something or watch something, uh, something that always happens is I come around in my head to thinking of like, would I use this in a class? Like what kind of class would I use this for? And I was thinking of like a, like an eco Gothic type class. <clears throat> oh, got choked. Eco Gothic type class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I could use it for that. Like, it's not a good movie, but it has those sorts of elements and the fact that it's even presenting them in this kind of, you know, horror movie way is, is novel enough that I'd be like, yeah, hey, watch this. Uh, but it's not, you know, I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock into it. I don't think it in a way it's sort of similar to the happening in its B movie. That's a good point. It's B movie status. And, you know, I don't know if I, I've said this, but we've talked about the happening a few times, but I remember reading an article just a couple of years ago, you know, the happening was, I don't know, 2008 or something like that. Uh, and uh, the interview was with M night Shyamalan and, he, and the interview predated the release of the movie. And he said, well, what we were trying to do is make a really good B horror film and you know the happening is like a a term for a a certain type of kind of campy horror film Uh, i I think a lot of people miss the irony of the title there yeah um and, and so i mean i don't enjoy the movie but i do think it um people should take into consideration the fact that that movie is is what it is self-consciously. Um, it is not trying to be the sixth sense or unbreakable. Um, you know, it's not as sincere 
as those as those movies. And so, uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's less sincere than this movie than the last winter. The last winter, to me, kind of takes itself a little too seriously. I think. Yeah, um, which it, it is interesting to think about them as a pair. Uh, they both have sort of well-known people in the cast. They both have these sort of like environmentally focused, but never very kind of skewed through this specific lens sort of uh, way of uh, narrative and that sort of stuff. Um, but like you were saying that this movie is deathly serious, <laughs> like yeah. 100% sincere in what it's doing. Whereas I think if you, if you try to do like a reclamation project with the happening and you say that it's a B movie, it makes it fine. Like it's not good, but it's a B movie. It's not supposed to be. Yeah, if you if you go in expecting um, the sixth sense, you are going to be disappointed. Uh, like it would have been it would have been interesting if M Night Shyamalan could have just not put his name on that and just you know, and they could have made the trailer kind of campy, you know, and put some like old school like fonts on the title cards and things like that to where it looks like you know, some like swamp thing or something. Um, yeah, Zoe Deschanel in like a ripped dress, like <laughs> right, right. You know, some, something like that, but they, they sold it the same way they sold, you know, signs and unbreakable and things like that. And, uh, and that it's just not that at all. Um, and so, and so everyone was just disappointed, including myself. I was like, okay, what the fuck? Yeah. Okay. I mean, Mark Wahlberg is a, science teacher <laughs> buffest high school science teacher of all time yeah uh so yeah not not great uh, we it's something we should probably it's a movie we should probably do for the podcast at some point um but i just but, don't want to watch it <laughs> yeah that, that's the big <laughs> thing like we we only watch this movie because we were unaware of it and had not seen it already so now it's like yeah. do i really want to go I'm, back through that I'm sure at some point we can talk ourselves into it, especially if we, like you said, do a sort of reclamation project and, and do a little bit of research and, and try to sort of put, you know, talk about the movie in, in the context that it should be talked about and not as a failure against signs and unbreakable. Yeah. But I, we've talked about, I think maybe we've mentioned this on the podcast. We definitely talked about it in person about how, it seems like the point at which people gave up on M night Shyamalan was, uh, the village. Yeah. We which both, I love. He has to say, we both agree that the village is kind of good. Yeah. <laughs> or at least in our opinion is good. I, William Hurt is fantastic in that movie. Yeah. I think the whole cast is pretty solid. And, and I think people got pissed off cause it's like, Oh, this twist is so stupid. It's like, I don't, I really don't think it's that stupid. Like, even if you know that there's a big twist coming, I think the way that the movie plays out, it's like, yeah, this, it, it's sort of that thing of like, what else could it be, right? Like, what would be the the explanation? Um, so I, I don't know. I, I like that movie, and I feel like it got kind of a bum rap. I need to see um, uh, what the fuck is that movie called? Glass. Lady in the Water. I've seen Lady in the Water. A Glass, yeah. right? The new Glass. Yeah, I haven't seen that one yet yeah, either. I need to see that. That just so I can. Did you see? Did you see Split? I I saw like half of it. <laughs> I was gonna say because that's that's the one you. I think you need to see that before you see glass. I know what happens in it, but I haven't seen all of it. 
Um, but yeah, glass, I think just to see how that all played out, because I think it's pretty clever. Well, for one, it's incredibly surprising that he got away, uh, with being able to do that of bring the whole story together, like 20 years later or however long it was after being so maligned for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Nice little coup on his part. Uh, anyway, not related to this. And it's kind of funny. I noticed that happening when we have a movie that we don't really care for. We just kind of run out of things to say about it. Yeah, we get we get philosophical and uh, and trivial at the same time. Yeah. So this is just like it just tips the scale toward being what I would consider bad. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's not the worst thing. Like I said, it's not Biodome. It's no. It's watchable. It's just not enjoyable. <laughs> yeah watchable but not enjoyable that's a good way to put it yeah um so yeah i'm done talking about the movie yeah me too <laughs> anything happened this week that pertains to the podcast um that you can think of not not off the top of my not off the top of the biodome all righty well, um, shit, in that case. Uh, what are we doing next week? Next week, we uh, are doing something that, actually, it's kind of funny. Like, we sometimes we have trouble thinking of things to do, and I just asked Lava before the podcast, what should we do? And she thought about it for a second, and then she came up with this, which works perfectly. So next week, we're going to be talking about uh, Aaron Brockovich, directed by Steven Soderbergh from the year 2000. I was reading he Soderbergh won an Oscar in the year 2000, but it was not for Aaron Brockovich. It was for traffic. Yeah. Cause traffic he was is nominated good. for two different movies in the same year. It sounds like I was thinking like, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I was thinking of like doing a kind of globe trotting, uh, sort of political movie. Mm-hmm. thing <laughs> cavalcade one week uh so traffic is kind of like that even though it's mostly just uh u.s and mexico but then there's like Babel and uh, syriana yeah and um all that kind of stuff we could also do just like the board the the u.s mexico border and do like traffic and um shit what's that movie called they just released the the sequel that was really bad with Benicio del Toro. Oh, uh, I want to say Serpico, but that's not, that's not it. Sicario. Sicario. Yes. So the first Sicario, excellent. Sicario two day of the Soldado dog shit did not like it at all. <laughs> um, but that would be an interesting kind of thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. kind of pairs. Uh, but next week, Aaron Brockovich, and I think it, it, it's going to, I've never seen Aaron Brockovich and you're saying you've never seen it either. No, I don't know. Somehow. Yeah. Which, yeah. It's weird that I've seen so many of his, of Soderbergh's other movies and just movies from that era that you would think I would be aware of it. Uh, but speaking of, of Julia Roberts and, uh, and doing a, uh, you know, like traffic and, uh, Sicario, we should add, uh, the Mexican to that list. The Mexican. Isn't that, is it with Brad Pitt? Is, and that about, Julia is that about the gun? Like, am I thinking? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I want to make sure I was I had that right. Um, 
But the, the Aaron Brockovich kind of looking at it and having some kind of idea of what it's about seems sort of like a this reminiscent of like a Promise Land and like Gas Land more specifically. Yeah. Uh, and this isn't about natural gas, but a uh, similar kind of thing of like there's a town that's afflicted and there's one person trying to advocate for them. Right. Um, and so it'll be it'll be interesting to, to see what we find to talk about because it's man-made disaster uh so i guess yeah. i guess climate change is man-made disaster so i can't really yeah <laughs> now that i think about it it's all one big disaster man oh i watched the beach bum oh yeah yeah pretty cool uh real <laughs> real rambling like there's not really there's a plot, but it's, I think, purposefully kind of just like all over the place. Normally, Harmony Corinne is very linear and uh, narrative based, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, are you, Do you mind if I like give you a, a tiny spoiler of it? Give me a tiny spoiler So to fit on my tiny uh, Pontiac. <laughs> so, uh, McCon- <laughs> your Pontiac Sunfire. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, McConaughey's character is named Moondog. That's his whole name. It's Moondog, and he's a really well-known writer, poet. Um, he published a bunch of books that were really well-received, and like people know who he is. Um, and so he he writes a book uh, at the end to meet a stipulation of like to to get some money. Uh, I'll leave all that part out. But he writes this book and publishes it because he has a publisher and they're waiting on it and he finishes it and they publish it immediately and he wins the Pulitzer for it. <laughs> and it's, it, it's easily like the funniest part of the movie is that he, he wins this Pulitzer and he's like at the ceremony wearing like a Tommy Bahama shirt. <laughs> I definitely have to see that now. It's, it's worth a watch, man. It's got some, some interesting stuff like Martin Lawrence is in it for a minute. Oh yeah, I remember seeing him in the preview. Yeah, Snoop Dogg's like a prominent character. <laughs> uh, he's a rapper named Lingerie, <laughs> and they call him Ray for short. It's pretty good. Nice. Uh, yeah. So I, I, that's that's my takeaway from uh, the last winter is that I recommend that you watch the Beach Bum. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it seems like we've had several weeks like that. Yeah, I think we even had a, I can't remember what the film was, but we had this exact same scenario, except it was you talking about something. <laughs> and you're like, that's my takeaway. Is <laughs> I recommend this other thing. Um, yeah. So next week, Aaron Brockovich, Julia Roberts, making her first appearance, joining our uh, horde of actors that we've critiqued. She won't be as bad as the... Uh... The dude in uh, the last winter, the young yeah. guy. Yeah, pretty bad. He get, he did he was real good at being naked outside. A supple ass. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wins the uh, he wins the willy for supplest ass. Is that a word? Supplest. Supplest. I'm sure. Well, so when we do the award recap show. What do you want to call the award? Um, you can call it the uh, 
the the anthropes the ants <laughs> the anti the antis uh i don't know let's think on that we'll come up with something fucking hilarious <laughs> just toss <laughs> off another fucking spin some more shit into gold for you fucking <laughs> hogs um <laughs> so yeah we'll 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 think on it and and come back with something. So yeah, next week, Aaron Brockovich. Take her easy. Watch your cock and balls out there, because poison ivy is no joke or whatever it was. It's been a minute. <laughs> <laughs>